This week, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, Dr. Ron Ross from the uh, National Institutes of Standards and Technology. That's NIST for those following along at home. He is computer scientist and fellow there. We're going to discuss the complexities and challenges of cybersecurity and compliance, and he's going to tell us a few of the things that NIST is working on uh, to help both government and private sector organizations stay ahead of attackers. And to take full advantage of the fact that we have him here on the show, we're going to do a special episode and forego, forego security and compliance news this week so we can do a second segment with Ron. So join us as we tear down silos and build bridges on Security and Compliance Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. And now, it's the show that bridges the requirements of regulations, compliance, and privacy with those of security. Your trusted source for complying with various mandates, building effective programs, and current compliance news. It's time for Security and Compliance Weekly. Today's organizations face an evolving set of security threats and continually changing compliance requirements. As your business grows, privacy concerns only multiply and add to a dynamic set of priorities. Today's organizations need to integrate risk, security, and privacy into a cohesive program. Online Business Systems team of seasoned security practitioners work closely with you to assess your security posture, policies, procedures, and technologies providing tailored solutions that are specifically aligned to your business's risk profile and ultimately ensure the protection of your brand. To learn more about online business systems, go to securityweekly.com forward slash online. Welcome to this special edition of Security and Compliance Weekly. This is episode number four, and we're recording on October 29th, 2019, a very special day because it happens to be the day that uh, the first draft of PCI DSS version 4.0 has been released. We might just talk about that a little bit, but we'll see how it goes. I'm your host, Jeff Mann, coming to you remotely from beautiful Pasadena, Maryland. Uh, joining me uh, are my co-host, Scott Lyon, who I believe is luxuriating in a hotel room somewhere in Miami, as well as our CEO, Matt Alderman, who's coming uh, us coming to us from, I think, a full 70, 75 degrees colder in uh, Denver. Welcome, guys. Thanks yeah, for having you- us on. Yeah, a few inches of snow in, in Colorado this week. Great. Hey, I want to start with a, a quick announcement. We're very excited to have to announce that our new Security Weekly website is officially live. So visit securityweekly.com to check out all of the new sorting and filtering functionality that we've built into it. And please, please let us know if you find any issues or if you have any feedback. And you can do that by sending an email to website at securityweekly.net. Also, as a quick announcement, we now have security and compliance stickers. So we're officially a show because we have stickers. All right, let's move on. Uh, I want to introduce our guest today, Dr. Ron Ross. He's a fellow at the National Institute for Standards and Technology. That's what NIST actually stands for. And his focus areas are cybersecurity, system security engineering, and risk management. Uh, Ron's responsible for uh, a litany of projects and, and, and efforts and publications from NIST. Um, uh, I would read the whole list, but that would take up our whole time. Some of the highlights are FISMA implementation project, several FIPS documents, uh, 
near and dear if you're working in the government at all. Uh, NIST special publication 800-53 with a smattering of 800-37 and a little bit of 800-171. Prior to his time at NIST, Dr. Ross served as the director of the National Information Assurance Partnership, which was a joint or is a joint activity of NIST and the National Security Agency. Hmm, who do I know that worked at NSA? He also has supported the U.S. State Department in the International Outreach Program for Cybersecurity and Critical Infrastructure Protection. Ron, welcome to Security and Compliance Weekly. Oh, how you doing, Jeff? It's great to be with you and Scott and Matt today, and thanks for doing this interview. Well, we really, really appreciate your taking the time out to come and talk to us. Um, just to start off, we, we typically ask our guests, uh, you know, how did you get your start in this thing, uh, you know, uh, called cybersecurity? But in particular, how'd you, how'd, you, how'd you fall into the whole compliance side of things? Well, it's an interesting story, actually. I was an Army officer. I spent 20 years in the United States Army. And my uh, when I was in the Army, my last uh, part of my Army career, they, uh, they sent me to school twice to get uh, degrees in computer science. The first time was at the Naval Postgraduate School in the, that was in the early 1980s. And toward the end of the 80s, the Army was developing an autonomous vehicle program. And they needed some military officers to go to school to understand artificial intelligence and robotics. That's the smart part of the vehicle, the autonomous vehicle. So I ended up back at the Naval Postgraduate School and I got my PhD in 1989, and I specialized. It was a degree in computer science that specialized in AI and robotics. The day before I was supposed to leave for my program manager's job that I've been working toward, I got a call from the Department of the Army, and they said, uh, the guy that's sitting in your job right now has decided to extend for one year. So you need to find a new job. So I called my buddies. Uh, a couple of them were working at the National Security Agency. And they said, we got plenty of great jobs over here. Come on over. So in 1990, I showed up at the NSA. And just by accident, I got started in my cybersecurity career in 1990. I knew absolutely nothing about cybersecurity. But I did have my degree. And I got into what has become one of the most amazing uh, careers and professions one could ever hope for. It's just every day. I've been doing this a long time. And I'm 68 years old now probably should be retired, but I love this discipline, the profession so much, and there are so many challenges and so much important work. As you all know, you're involved in the same fight that we all are involved in, and that passion is what drives me every day, and I I just love the community of cybersecurity professionals. They are relentless. They're getting up every day, doing the heavy lifting, So what I do at NIST is really the easy part of the job, developing the standards and guidelines. The heavy lifting is done by all of you in the field out there, the the foot soldiers who are fighting the fight every day. So I'm it's been an incredible run. I'm I'm so grateful that I've had an opportunity to serve my country, both in the military and now uh, for over 22 years at NIST. Dr. Ross, I I was going to. Yeah. Um, sorry, Matt, quickly. real quick. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Dr. Ross, first, uh, absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the show. As I was telling you beforehand, I was one of those guys in the early days of 853 sitting in the original draft reviews back in late 03, early 04. I don't exactly remember what time it is. Um, yeah. how, how did you get from the NSA 
to NIST. And NIST is an interesting organization because I think you roll up under the Computer Security Resource Center, which is kind of a, a, a subset of NIST. Can, can you walk people through, one, that transition from the NSA over to NIST, but then how is NIST structured a little bit in, in kind of what you do on the uh, Computer Security Resource Center side? Sure. It was actually interesting. My last assignment while I was in the Army was at the NSA, and, and I was a division chief over at the agency that produced the what you might remember as the Rainbow Series. That was the Orange Book, the Red Book, and all of the early trusted computer security evaluation criteria. That was my division. And when I retired from the military in 1993, I went to work in the private sector for about four years. And then I came back over to work at NIST, and, but I was familiar with what NIST did because when I was working at, at NSA, we used to collaborate with NIST uh, all the time. We had the national conference back in those days, and there was a lot of interaction between the two organizations. A lot of folks don't realize that in our country, unlike most countries, the national security system side of the house is separate from the non-national security side of the house. So NIST, by statute, we, we have responsibility for that non-national security side. And the NSA obviously has the other, the intelligence committee, all of those organizations. So I was very familiar with what they did. And I just enjoyed the people over there. They've always had a great mission. And that was where I ended up in 1997. And the, uh, the people that work there are tremendous. It's actually 3,000 scientists and engineers. And we're divided up into different laboratories. We have a physics lab and a chemistry lab. I work in the information technology lab, and within that laboratory, we have two cybersecurity divisions. We have our computer security division, which has been around for many, many decades, and then we have a relatively new division called the Applied Cybersecurity Division, and those two divisions really divide up the landscape into, on this, uh, the computer security division side, we work on the fundamentals of like the controls, the cryptography, all the foundational elements that customers would use to build their security programs. And on the other side, the applied side, they do take the fundamentals and work with customers to apply the fundamentals to the like healthcare, financial systems. We have our National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence that works with industry to come up with good, workable, efficient solutions to help customers protect their critical data and their assets. So it's just been a, a really nice uh, interface I had a lot of experience working with those folks previously, and then when I came over there, I, I now have the uh, privilege of working there for over 22 years. And so if I, if I break this down correctly, it, help me, uh, this, the, a lot of the standards being produced out of the uh, computer security resource side, is NIST cybersecurity framework then on the applied side? Well, that's another interesting story. Uh, th these things don't happen in a vacuum. The the cybersecurity framework actually came out of that work uh, was assigned to NIST based on an executive order uh, that was somewhere around the 2012 timeframe. And that was really before we had an applied cybersecurity division. That division is relatively new. And the cybersecurity framework, as you know, that was a collaborative effort that NIST worked with many, many organizations in the private sector to develop a framework to help them protect critical assets. And they didn't really have a framework like we did in the federal government. We've had the risk management framework since about 2005. So the intent was to try to get a framework out in the private sector that would help the folks in that uh, side of the house to, to protect their systems and their critical resources. 
It turns out that today, the cybersecurity framework, it really is not a, a FIPS or a special publication or even an, an interagency report. It's still just a document that sits uh, externally facing, although it's it's managed and updated by NIST all the time, and it does happen to reside as part of the Applied Cybersecurity Division. So that's just kind of how it breaks down. And it's just one of those things that happens within organizations, how the work is split up. Yeah, that actually uh, is one of the questions I, I had for you. Uh, you know, as I was looking through your bio and it was listing all the different things you've been involved with, um, could you give us sort of a basic understanding, at least how NIST defines the differences between things like a, a, a standard or a special publication or a framework? Because that seems to be like the, the three major, um, you know, uh, products that, that NIST produces. Right. Well, we have, as you said, we have different types of publications. We develop the content and it'll either end up in one of three different types of publications. Uh, we talked about the cybersecurity framework doesn't really fall under one of those three categories. But our top level uh, work is uh, deployed in something called a FIPS, a Federal Information Processing Standard. We don't have a lot of those. You'll see something like FIPS 199 or FIPS 200 the categorization standard or the minimum security requirements. Many, many people are familiar with FIPS 140. That's our cryptographic standard. And that's the top level document. Those standards are mandatory and non-waiverable under the Federal Information Security Modernization Act of 2014. That legislation was the update of the original FISMA legislation circa 2003. Then it, once the one level down from that are something we call special publications. That's something that's not a standard, but it has, it's the next level down as far as the importance of the content. And so you'll see publications that are sometimes very closely related to FIPS. For example, 853 is a special publication that's tied to FIPS 200 and FIPS 199. So there's a relationship in a lot of these publications, the SPs and our FIPS. And we have a tremendous number of special publications that deal with very technical content. So you may find a security control, for example, in 853 that requires a contingency plan. I think the number is CP2 in 853. We have an actual special publication. I think it's NIST 834, which goes into great detail on contingency planning. So we try to take in our special pubs can amplify the things that appear in controls. And there is a tremendous array of special pubs on our website. They're all organized very nicely on the CSRC website. And then the third category, you might see something called a NIST IR, interagency report or an internal report. And that content is typically not ready for the special publication or a FIPS as far as the the level of content and the maturity. It might be uh, early research on a certain topic or something that just doesn't rise to the level of an SP or something like that. We did many interagency reports on smart grid and cloud computing. There's an, a NISTER on the cybersecurity framework that helps our federal agencies understand how to do the CSF on the federal side. So it's kind of those three levels of uh, publications that we have. And then, and then the cybersecurity framework is kind of outside of those those three in particular. 
Saran, if if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, you said that FIPS are the only things that are absolute standards, and the next level down, you said with special publications, are they not then required to be followed? And I will have a specific question, but I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah, there's a policy. Uh, in addition to FISMA, there's an OMB policy. It's called Circular A130. It was updated in 2016. And mm. there's a general statement that all NIST uh, publications are mandatory. I'm making quotation marks. That right. means that federal agencies are required to apply the content of all the special pubs. The FIPS are non-waverable, but even the special pubs, you have to apply the content. But there's great flexibility from the OMB side of the house on how an agency would apply that content. So, for example, 853 is actually called out in FIPS 200. And that's the way that an agency would, would do compliance, if you will. They would take 853. There's literally hundreds of controls in that catalog. But when they go through the tailoring process, and there's great flexibility in what they actually end up with in their security plan. And so the, the expectation is not that the, every federal agency has to follow every line of every word of every line in the special pub, but I would say they have to apply the, the spirit of the content in the pub as opposed to the letter. Now, that's a little different than uh, like a 199 to 200, right? So if I go out and baseline my systems based on CIA and the FIPS 199, bubble to the high watermark to apply FIPS 200, for right. those agencies under FIPS requirements, they have to follow the baseline from the 199 assessment, correct? That's correct. They, of course, we now have a second method, which we can talk about later. That's been the traditional approach. We started out back in 2003 with our FIPS uh, 199 and FIPS 200. Those are the first kind of, I call those the bookend standards. And the 853 was a recognition that our federal agencies have such a diverse set of missions and business operations that we, we went with the triage approach so saying, let's give them a set of starting controls in the low, the moderate, or the high baseline. And that is, as you say, that's tied to the, uh, the categorization under FIPS 199. But to comply with the 17 major requirements in FIPS 200, that could happen um, in a numerous, numerable different ways, depending on how the particular agency tailors the, the baseline that they have selected. So, for example, if their impact level is moderate, moderate data, moderate systems, then they would start with that moderate baseline. And then based on their specific mission, their environment of operation, the technologies they're using, and just how they conduct their business, they would go through and tailor that baseline, maybe adding some controls, maybe taking away some controls and providing a justification. Whatever they decide at the end, that that set of controls that, that they've agreed or agreed upon, they would document those in their security plan, and that would be what they would be held uh, to account as far as compliance. So there is a very tight relationship in this particular case between 853 and FIPS 200, but there's also a high degree of flexibility in how they're applied. So. Uh, I, I I am very anxious to ask this question, and and this is in no way meant to trip you up. I'm really curious as to what your thoughts thoughts are on this. Uh, I've been doing PCI for quite a few years, and and the PCI world was turned upside down a few years back when they attempted to push out a, a an a, an updated version 
of the standard that deprecated or, or, or was requiring all the all the merchants and all the companies that have to do PCI to suspend the use of any SSL or early TLS. And they based that on NIST special publications, and I forget the, the, the numbers off the top of my head. There were several of them. And, and I think there was a letter that went out that said, you, you know, something to the effect of, uh, you know, pay attention to these special publications, SSL needs to go away. Um, you know, PCI uh, attempted to enforce that. They had to back off and allow for a, a several, I think about an 18-month grace period, grandfathering period. Uh, and, and only in the last year or so has it uh, you know, supposedly been mandatory that PCI world has to follow the there shouldn't be any SSL or early TLS in use anymore, uh, and yet there's still it's still a, a subject of great debate. Uh, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on sort of specifically that particular problem, but in general, uh, how, do, how does the private sector and companies, uh, organizations that are subject to things like PCI, where PCI in turn says for uh, you know, reference to what is uh, you know robust or good or solid crypto refer to for refer to NIST as your guide. Uh, please enlighten me. Yeah, it's it's a fairly complicated situation. Obviously, we recognized back in even in two thousand three, when we first start, started putting together the early versions of eight hundred fifty three. There, there were standards out there at the time. The, the controls that are in, for example, the ISO 27001 uh, Annex A, we've had, uh, we've had other control sets out there for a long time. And I think the, this problem of controls and compliance and mapping and public and private sector has been around for a while. And I think to, to answer one of your questions about, uh, this is a constantly evolving world, as you know, in cybersecurity. We, we always work under kind of the risk assessment model of looking at threats, vulnerabilities, impact, and likelihood. Those are the four functions of a risk assessment. And of course, the threat space is constantly changing. Uh, the vulnerabilities that may end up in a particular system are constantly changing. We're bringing in new technologies. There's a lot of churn in this world. And then we have all these organizations trying to establish some kind of discipline or structure through these control catalogs to try to get a level set on what I call it the due diligence of cybersecurity, whether it's PCI or whether it's COBIT or whether it's the CIS top 20. I think they all have the basic same idea in mind. They want to try to provide some structure and discipline as far as what kind of security safeguards are, are needed to actually stop attacks and protect information. Well, then you get into the, the relationship between the public and private sector. Uh, most of the stuff, in fact, all the things we do at NIST are really focused on the federal government first. That's our primary mission is to produce standards and guidelines that can help protect federal information systems. That's part of the charter under the FISMA legislation. And we've tried to do that, but everything that we do at NIST, we always have a, an eye on the private sector to make sure that whatever we're producing for the feds uh, can be adopted on a voluntary basis in the private sector if they choose to do so. And, and, and that's been the case in, in many, many instances over the years. Um, certainly in the early days of 853, we tried to put what we call mapping tables in the back of our publication to show, for example, 
if you're in the private sector and you're doing ISO 27001 and you have a statement of applicability and you select a set of controls under ISO 27001 Annex A, how do those controls relate or map to the controls on the NIST side of the house? So if you are in the private sector and you have a federal contract, you can then show that equivalence uh, to the best of our ability. We're still working with the English language and we're not using first order predicate calculus to, to make those mappings. So there's always gonna be a lot of subjectivity, but we tried to do those mappings to make it easier for our customers on the private sector side who are using our standards and guidelines on a voluntary basis to um, see that relationship. And again, every sector has their own bent. Uh, healthcare, for example, with HIPAA requirements. And you've got the HIPAA security rule. And those are mapped to a set of controls uh, in the NIST uh, catalog as well. So all these vertical sectors, and some of those, by the way, in the private sector may be under regulatory authority of a federal agency. Uh, so for example, in the energy sector, you have FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and then there's NERC, and then that interfaces to all of the, the power plants and the grid across the United States and North America. So there's a lot of compliance that ends up being pushed out from the federal agency uh, into the, uh, the, the state and locals and also the private sector. Same thing is true with the IRS, and uh, there's a publication that the IRS uses for comptrollers across the United States that have a lot of the controls in 853 for that particular financial slice. So I think you're always gonna see that kind of churn. Uh, there, it's never a perfect situation because we are using multiple different control catalogs and we try to do our best to not lose sight of the fact that the essence of any control is to try to establish some level of due diligence that we can measure to understand how close are we getting to our target or our, our objective of making sure that our systems are as secure and protected as they need to be. It's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, one of one of the uh, goals of this new show that we've put together, that we've titled "Security and Compliance Weekly," is we're we're trying to sort of uh, foster a discussion as we're having now between sort of the you know. There's more than just two, but the the two camps or the two silos within the cybersecurity community of security on one side, more practitioners, you know, got to secure everything versus compliance, which uh, tends to be more, you know, follow a standard, follow, follow a guideline, right. follow a framework type of thing. Uh, a, a question that we're, we're attempting to ask all of our guests, and I was remiss in asking earlier, but I think it's, you know, the conversation we've had, I think this is a good place to ask the question, where do you, Ron Ross, stand in the continuum, as it were, between security and compliance? That is really a great question, and I, I think this is one that's asked all the time. We hear that question in the form of, look, you can be compliant and you can follow the checklist and, so, and still have a system that's, very, that's not very secure. And I would agree with that statement. I think we have to be very careful in being too dogmatic about what compliance really means. I try to define compliance a little differently. I try to say compliance is, to me, the implementation of a sound and robust risk management program that deals with privacy, security, maybe supply chain considerations. And it takes into account all of the range of issues that senior leaders have to deal with. Because at the end of the day, everybody's got a mission to accomplish. And that's true for warfighters, the intelligence community, the folks at TSA, the air traffic controllers, 
the private sector and the Fortune 500 companies, everybody's got that critical mission they have to accomplish. And they have an organization that sets out to try to help those senior leaders be successful. So I think in today's world of a very dynamic set of changing technologies, and certainly the threat space is constantly on the move with very, very high-end, sophisticated adversaries that are throwing their A-game at us every day. I think it's very dangerous to rely on com a compliance definition that goes back to the checklist. I think you've got to be agile. You've got to be thinking out of the box. You have to innovate. And you have to bring in every person on that team to get all the ideas around the table that can help you really understand, first and foremost, what are those risks out there? And then be able to accept those risks at some point in time when you've made all of those critical decisions about how much am I going to protect? What kinds of controls? How am I going to get these systems to the point where I feel that I can make a credible risk-based decision? And I think that decision and whatever risk tolerance is inherent within any organization is going to be variable across the federal government. It's going to be variable across the private sector. But I believe that we are living in a very risk-related world today. Uh, my, my two role models that I've always held up in all the work that I try to do are NASCAR and NASA, uh, both of those organizations for different reasons are my role models because they operate in very high-risk, high-intensity environments. And they succeed a whole lot more than they fail. Certainly, NASA's had its very small number of failures. But over the course of that entire space program, from the Mercury to the Gemini to the Apollo to the shuttle program, we've lost very few astronauts. And, and we've been operating in, in space and sending men to the moon and coming back and all of those great things that rely on fundamentally good, sound engineering and science to get that job done. But those are also great risk takers. They understand the risks first, and they go forward and they do as much as they can to protect the mission and still accomplish the mission. The same thing with NASCAR. They operate high-intensity, high-performance race cars, driving around tracks like Talladega at 200 miles an hour, maybe two or three inches from a cement barrier. And they've developed technology that every driver wears called the Hans device, head and neck safety. There's no driver that's lost his life or her life uh, since Dale Earnhardt had that tragedy in 2001. So that's my definition of compliance. Good risk management, understanding the risks, and then going forward and accomplishing the mission with all the, the people that uh, you have on the team. That's uh, a very uh, in-depth definition appreciate that uh, we're going to take a quick break we'll come back and uh, we'll attempt to dig a little bit deeper on that and, and get some uh, more questions from the hosts so with that we'll take a quick break and come back right after these messages <laughs> 